Check it out. Hello everyone, my name is Lee, and in today's episode, I'll be talking to longtime friend of the AIDS Action Council and leader of the newly formed Reason Party, Fiona Patton. Check it out. LGBTIQ health, lifestyle, and community news. Check it out is brought to you by the AIDS Action Council. From Canberra. For everyone. Check it out. So today I'm talking with Fiona Patton, the leader of the Reason Party, formerly mm-hmm. known as the Sex Party. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you, Lee. It's a pleasure to have you in the studio. It's great to be here. And I have to say this is my um, it's either my third or fourth AIDS Council building that I've been to. But Associated with the AIDS Action Council? Indeed. Because you were once a board member, I believe. Yes, I was. You know, it was a really important time for the HIV and AIDS campaigns. We were still an activist organisation in lots of ways. We were providing services, but we were also campaigning. And, you know, when I go to events now and look at U equals U, that just was not even imaginable right. when I was on the board in the early 90s. So what sort of things were hot topics at the time? Well, when we were looking at whether to test or not to test. Right. So now, I mean, who would think about not testing now? But back then, there was so much stigma and so much discrimination. And what year was this, Fiona? So this must have been... Um, 1990. Okay, so yes. that was right at the yes the pointy end of the epidemic. Really, That's right. It? So the AIDS Council was upstairs in Lonsdale Street mm-hmm. in Braddon, and we actually had two buildings there. We moved from one to the other um, in Lonsdale Street, and yeah, there was not a lot of treatment. So there was AZT really was the only treatment right. available. Uh, so counselling was a really important role and i really pleased to see that still is such an important role of the council. And growing. And growing, yeah. which is wonderful. Yeah. Really great and such an important role. But, you know, we were just seeing the, the beginnings of PLWHA. Um, I think that was called PLWA in those days. Yeah. Uh, we set up the um, Trevor Daly Trust Fund. Which is still going strong. I know. And... You know, we, we laughed in that kind of black humour that you had because TDF meant to die for. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've never I have never thought of that before, uh, but of course it does. And, you know, and it, and in doing that, it was a really, like it was one of the wonderful things of being, being a board member and being part of the Trevor Daly Fund was that, you know, we didn't ask questions. If you wanted money for a holiday, if you wanted money for electricity... Now, we had one guy who wanted money for heroin. And we were like, mate, come on. Like, you know, you're really testing us here. Yeah. I, said, I said, how about you just give us your electricity bill? We'll pay that. And then you can use the money that you're going to use for your electricity bill to buy heroin. You know, yeah. it was such a grassroots time. But it was also a time when, you know, Australia was quite brave. You know, we were... You know, we were expanding out needle exchange programs. Um, I was working, volunteering on one of the mobile needle exchange buses. Um, okay, right. And it was a very different space to what it is now. But similar. But similar. Yeah. But absolutely similar. And we're still fighting stigma. We're still fighting discrimination. But we've come such a long way and we've seen discrimination legislation be introduced. In, in 1990, it was still illegal to have same-sex sex in Tasmania. 
Yeah, that's right. You it's know, 1997 that that's, it became decriminalised. That's right. Mm. That's right. You know, sex work was still illegal in the ACT. Wow, okay. In 1990. So, yes, yeah, so there's a lot has changed in that time, but as you say, a lot has stayed the same. Check it out. Well, you've spent a lot of time in Canberra. Um, you lived here for a, quite mm. a number of years. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And you've. Oh, I was born here. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And you've spent a lot of time within the adult industry more broadly. You were a founding member of WISE? No, that's right. So I was running a fashion business in Garima Place called Body Politics. And my best friend, Judith Taylor, was running WISE when I was doing that. And I ended up meeting lots and lots of sex workers mm-hmm. um, through the shop and through Judith. And we would run like fashion parades at 3am in the morning after the brothels closed up in Fishwick. We'd have sort of champagne and croissants and it was when you could still smoke inside. So, you know, we'd all be chuffing away. So that was how I got involved with WISE. And then when Judith uh, Judith moved on to do something else, I took over the the management of WISE, which was initially housed in the AIDS Council. And then soon after I joined, I formed it, we established ourselves independently and and moved out to Fishwick. But yes, so that was was possibly my first foray into the adult industry. But yes, became a lot more involved as it went on. Yeah, so WISE stands for Workers in Sex Employment. Yes. So when you were involved with WISE, what were some of the big issues that you were faced with then? Uh, The illegality of the industry, uh, as well as HIV, obviously. So we were were funded jointly by, by federal and state funding. And in those days, they allowed us to take a very holistic approach to HIV prevention. And so my job was to go around to all the brothels um, a couple of times a week, make sure that everyone was happy, everyone had plenty of condoms and lube and those sorts of things, Mm -hmm. but also making sure that everyone was working safely and, and comfortably. Right. So, you know, if women were working, if they were doing double shifts and things like that, we'd sort of have to have those conversations like, honey, you've got that kind of parlor pala that once you, you know. What did you you say, parlor pala? Parlor pala. Like, you've been here too long, you need (laughs) to go home. Like, it doesn't matter if you haven't earned any money, just go home. But we also, we could run things like B&D workshops and we'd argue that this was really looking at um, other options to penetrative sex. So it enabled us to look at other forms of safer sex right? Um, in that regard. But it was, um, I guess our main issue really was around the decriminalisation of sex work. It was also the same time that we got self-government. So the ACT had not had its own government up until 1990. Right. Um, and so when I was working with WISE, we had a new government so we were all brand new. There were brand spanking new politicians and we were brand spanking new lobbyists. Okay. So it was a very... Exciting really, time. It was a really exciting time and it was a really great sort of incubating time to to build up our knowledge and to build up our abilities around decriminalisation. Yeah. So your involvement with 
body politics, was that an organic move towards the adult industry? Did, was that a plan that you had in mind? <laughs> no, I don't think I've had a plan uh, <laughs> ever. <laughs> you know, sometimes I start with a plan in the morning, but that's okay. about, it doesn't get me. It, usually the plan fails by lunchtime. Because you, um, you graduated from um, college with a fashion yeah, design degree. A degree or diploma or yeah, whatever it would have exactly. Been. So the plan was to do landscape architecture. Okay. And um, that's right. Okay. Then that plan changed to industrial design. And at the end of that plan, I ended up um, qualifying in um, fashion design. Okay. And setting up my own business in fashion design. So was um, it was it a, a deliberate, um, were you targeting sex workers in no. a deliberate fashion or was it just ha- No, just we all got drunk one night and came up with the name Body Politics. Which is great, by the way. It was a good name. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I've, still, I've still got that. I've still got that email address yeah. anyway. But it's funny how now, at, at that time, that was in 1988 or 90, late 1987, yeah, I no knowledge or interest in the, the adult industry really. I'd looked at my dad's pornos. Yep. Um, that was probably about as much as I'd done. Um, I charged for sex once, but again, you know, I, it wasn't it wasn't my focus. And then, yes, I just kind of, in a strange way, just found myself working with Wise, working with the, the AIDS Council. You know, in the AIDS Council, I had a lot of gay friends, and you know, they were dying. Yeah. And there was nothing we could do, mm. and dentists were refusing to see them, and families weren't wouldn't share cutlery and you know the discrimination was awful and so you really wanted to to care for those people and and defend them yeah so that was how I kind of got involved and then that moved on and Robison and I set up the Eros Association that then became a much bigger industry association so what was the hook for you then if you weren't Endeavouring to become a part of the adult industry and advocate for sex workers, and, yeah. and the list is long. Let's yes. face it. What was the hook for you? Look, I, I think it was, it was interesting. It was interesting. It was exciting. The people were interesting and exciting, and you know, and, and for my um, HIV positive friends, it was just the um, horrible treatment that they were receiving that really activated me in in that regard but but then just as you go along i mean yeah the, because it's a sort of it's a stigmatized industry but it's a wonderful industry i mean sex is a wonderful thing you know i've always liked sex and you know i've never felt any shame around sex and sexuality so possibly that made me well suited right. to to representing to representing that industry there was, yeah, there was no kind of clear decision that that's where I would go. Mm. But once I got there, it was, it's such a wonderful industry. It's a very tight family. You know, I've now got friends from the industry that oh, will be at each other's funerals one way or the other. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's not only an interest in the interesting people and, mm. and, and the adult industry more generally, but it's a brave thing to do to advocate for and yeah. speak on behalf of a marginalised group. I think there's also a level of, you know, not that I was conscious of it, but I am a civil libertarian and I really did not like the injustice that I was seeing and that certainly got me involved. 
And I also could not understand, you know, when we moved to the adult good side of the industry, the censorship that we were experiencing. Mm. You know, why would governments try and ban images of two adults having consenting sex? You know, that just yeah. made absolutely no sense to me, nor, and it still doesn't. We know that the that the industry can actually play really important roles in people's lives in different in different ways, whether it's you know educating people to have better sex or educating people that they're not alone in in the sex that they're interested in. So yeah, I found it a fascinating industry, and and Canberra at the time being it, you know, we were the sex capital. I'm sure it was just to make us sound more interesting, you know, because everyone said Canberra's boring. It's going, no, we've got porn, you know, and we've got pyrotechnics, you know, not just politicians. (laughs) Check it out. Tell me about the National Museum of Erotica. (laughs) Where did it come from? Is it does it still exist? Um, it does exist in a. it exists in my mother-in-law's garage oh, no. and and our property out in the bush and in my office in Melbourne, in my home in Melbourne. It, 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 it has spread. But we, Robbie and I, okay, look, we, we verge on, we're collectors. Okay. Yeah, but there's that fine line, you know. <laughs> Between magpie and collector? That Or hoarder, yes, <laughs> that's right. Between a hoarder and a collector. Okay. I think we're just on the collector. We're, we're very near the line. Right. Uh, so we had this huge collection and we had this opportunity to display it rent-free on Northbourne Avenue. So we thought, what a great opportunity to do that. And at the time, the, the National Museum of Australia was just opening. So we thought, perfect. Yep. So we actually opened on the same day as the National M- Museum of Australia opened. Um, and we ran it for a couple of years. Robbie and I are better lobbyists than we are retailers. Okay. There is no doubt about that. Mm. But we really enjoyed it. Kate Carnell opened it for us. She was the former chief minister. You know, we had the Hungarian ambassador come and open an exhibition for us there. Yeah, we had a lot of fun there. And it also became the central point for our other little sideline, which was the Love Bus. Okay, tell me Um, about that. So the Love Bus was a bus that I used to, a touring champagne bus that I used to take groups of women on a Friday and Saturday evening around to get an inside view of the adult industry. Okay. So they'd meet at the at the museum. I would take them to a brothel, take them to a tabletop dancing venue. In those days, there was still video and DVD. So I'd take them to a duplication facility. I'd take them to a giant um, dildo warehouse where they could just see hundreds and thousands of dildos. I'd then take them to a few different um, adult shops yep. and show them the sort of behind the scenes. So in you really those- would... You really were on a mission to demystify, yes, weren't you? Really, indeed, indeed. And it's really interesting. Like I took my mother-in-law to the brothel, and I do recall because I used to also part of my shtick was to show people how to put a condom on with their mouth. And as I was doing it, I was looking. I realised that I was doing this in front of my mother-in-law, <laughs> which. Um, <laughs> okay. And what was her reaction? <laughs> well. She she didn't really know where to look either. I, I don't think she was terribly comfortable. But when I took her to the brothel, 
and we were going around there. She said, oh, Fiona. She said, well, I used to tell the boys, your bedroom looks like a brothel on payday. She said, I'll have to take that back. They're just neat as a pin, aren't they? They're lovely. (laughs) But it was a great way of demystifying the industry and that really helped in our campaigns for decriminalisation because if the community understands that this is not about women on, you know, bare mattresses with a bare bulb dangling above them and, you know, greasy old men... um, telling them what to do, Mm. that this industry is run by women for women and men are just the guests and the customers, it gives them a much better understanding and a much better appreciation of what decriminalisation means. Because a lot of sex workers would argue that sex work is more of a community service. That's right. Than it is an industry. Yeah. We had a great poster that WISE ran for for many years that was sex workers are the sex educators. Of That's the right. world. And I think that is absolutely true. And we also know that, you know, the vast majority of the time that a sex worker spends with a client is not having sex. Yeah. It's providing an intimate moment. It's providing an intimate conversation. And in a community and a society that is has a growing problem with social isolation, there is a real role for sex workers in that space. Mm. Um, also in the disability sector, we yes. saw a lot of women, mm. a lot of the work that sex workers have been able to do um, for people with disabilities, which has been um, groundbreaking and life-changing for people. So, yes, you know, as we did a book, which I think the AIDS Council probably has the only copy. I might r- rifle through your, your shelves when, I, when we finish here, uh, called Double Lives. Okay. And we spoke and we spoke to a number of sex workers and we did a whole range of photos and everyone told us the work was rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, the work could be challenging but in a good way. But what was the most difficult thing about the work was telling people what they did. And that sadly has not really changed. Most sex workers it, I mean, it's changed a little bit, but most sex workers probably haven't told their families what they do or haven't told their next-door neighbour yeah. or the teacher of their school kids. Check it out. Can you describe for me, like, the adult industry landscape today? When we think about things like Sister Foster, for example, has, mm. have you seen an impact that that's had within the, um, the sex worker community more specifically? Absolutely. Look, it's it's really interesting how international laws and international legislation and international activities like that have a global effect. Now, I mean, I suppose the odd thing is that in most jurisdictions in Australia, it's illegal to advertise mm. anyway. Mm. So all of those ads were technically illegal, mm. but they've now closed down different doors and different ways for the industry and particularly for independent workers to communicate safely with clients. Um, Technology will find a way around it and already has found a way Mm. around it. But what I do see, and particularly being in Victoria at the moment, is that our legislation just has not kept up with our society. Mm -hmm. So the Victorian legislation was written in 1986 and it is not reflective of an industry in 2018. The ACT legislation, which was written in 1992, 
really needs to be updated to reflect what our industry looks like in 2018. The notion of women working in cooperatives and women being able to work together needs to be recognised. The fact that sex workers travel for work and that there is there is a component of fly in, fly out, either in the ACT mm-hmm. um, or in in other jurisdictions. That's not recognised in law, which makes which makes some of those workers quite vulnerable because they're having to work in kind of a grey space. So I think we do need to update that. But the industry is not going away. It is changing, and we are seeing a lot more independent workers. And I don't think that's a bad thing. But I think you look at the 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 way the internet has disrupted so many economies and so many things. I mean, you know, we used to have taxi companies. Now we have Uber drivers. So the fact that there are more and more independent workers in the the adult industry um, is not surprising. On the adult retail side, well, you know, DVDs, the millions of pornos that used to be shipped out of Canberra, you know, every year, uh, that industry has largely disappeared um, and become extinct and obsolete. But what we're seeing in the online space is, you know, really interesting technologies emerging and, you know, the adult industry is generally at the forefront of a lot of those changes. Um, whether that's looking at payment systems or whether that's looking at file compression systems, the the adult industry has has um, been a leader I- in that space as well. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to your politics. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Tell me about that. At what point did you make that transition from mm. um, working with Wise and uh, being involved in the adult industry? What was the transition into politics? Yes, it was a very I think it was possibly a path less travelled, but I, look, I ran briefly in the ACT in 1992, um, really just to kind of platform some of the issues around the adult industry and around protecting that freedom of speech and protecting the rights of sex workers. What was Uh, that like when you were first tabling those sorts of issues? What sort of response did you get? Look, I guess... I, I was lucky at that state level that, you know, it was brand new politicians mm. and we were brand new. So we actually, there was actually great, um, there was a great ability to communicate and it was a, it was a much easier, um, a, a much easier process of speaking to the MPs about these issues. It, it's different now, but in the ACT at that stage, it was quite easy. Of course, once we set up um, the Eros Association and that went national um, and I was working on that national platform, going in and making appointments to see the Federal Attorney General uh, or other State Attorneys General, that was a very different, um, that was very different and, and also obviously I was with Scarlet Alliance so we were trying to take some of our issues onto a national platform as well and so that that did get a very different response. But people are so curious about sex. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even politicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the most alarming things that I used to get from politicians when they'd meet me is they'd go, but you seem so nice. 
<laughs> I was going to ask you that question, actually. Because and who were they expecting, Fiona? I don't know. That's right. I think that was yeah, – they, they were not expecting someone in an A-cup bra. Let's just say that. <laughs> Sands of feather boa. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah right. Yes. Um, so that was interesting and, and – it was such interesting work and it's such an interesting place to be lobbying in. I find that once we start, the way we start repressing sex generally is a canary in the coal mine, that once you start repressing people's ability to express their sexuality, you're probably going down a whole terrible yes. pathway um, of government repression. And and it was actually that that led us to forming the Australian Sex Party at the end of 2009. And it was that the Stephen Conroy, who was then the communications minister, shadow communications minister, said, all right, if we're elected, we're going to have a government internet filter. And we're going to filter the internet for adults. And effectively, they were going to prohibit depictions and websites that depicted sexually explicit material by consenting adults that they would all be filtered by the government. I mean, just the thought of a government internet filter is frightening. Well, we have countries that already do that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And not only frightening, but also completely futile and Mm. completely stupid. Mm. So that was at the point that we said, you know what, we need to take this to the ballot box. We need to prove that people are going to vote on this issue. We also were frustrated around marriage equality. We were frustrated um, around sex education and we were frustrated by the perverse thing that the government continued to ban computer games that were for adults. So computer games that were really 18 plus were being having to be censored down to be suitable for 15-year-olds um, to be sold in Australia. So just mad things. Yeah. So we set up the sex party and ran on that program. And up until that time, I had never, ever wanted to be a politician. I had lobbied them. I had seen my friends go into politics and I felt like they just sold their souls at the door. I would hear people say things and know that that just was not what they believed. Mm. And at first we didn't really think about getting elected either. We just thought about here's a fun way to exercise our free speech, you know. Be visible. And be visible and, you know, get these issues onto a ballot. And I think that I think we were effective in showing that people cared about that issue. And certainly the notion of an internet filter died away and um we still have an internet filter in Australia, but it's completely hopeless and mm. I don't think anyone thinks about it anymore. Was there ever a time during that period where you felt nervous or um, nervous about the reception you were going to get? I mean, you know, even I might even say frightened. Look, we, I mean, Robbie and I received death threats many times over our decades of campaigning for the adult industry. The most um, fearful time was when we put out a booklet called Hypocrites, which was calling, and this was in 1999, 2000, calling for a Royal Commission into child sexual abuse in religious institutions. And we called for that in 2000. We printed a booklet called Hypocrites, which listed every single convicted child sex abuser and 
guess what? They were all from religious institutions. And we sent that to every state, federal and local government representative and every church. And we did not get a good response. I mean, we got some great responses, but we also got death threats from a variety of people. So that was a bit frightening. But I tell you, once you put on a bright yellow T-shirt with sex written in red emblazoned across your chest and you wear that for a six-week campaign in in Turak, um, in the leafy suburbs of Turak. Yeah, I was running in the seat of Higgins. Uh, It's certainly, um, it's a baptism of fire and... You know, you you learn to become brave, and you learn you learn to become to to really. If you can't articulate what you're standing for while you're wearing that t-shirt, you're in trouble. Yeah, they're going to smell it. They, they are. They mm. are. And people were, well, people were confronted by. It, there is no doubt, uh, but it also did the job that it got people to look at the issues. Check it out. So we now have the reason party. Mm. Am I able to say that that was formerly the sex party? Yes, it's possibly we didn't we didn't want it's it's not a name it's more than a name change, and I think that's really important because when we looked at the changing in the voting systems for the Senate and just the the wide range of forward thinking, reasonable political parties in there and we were all we are all now sh- really shut out of the senate so we hope that reason will provide a bit of an umbrella um, movement for that kind of reasonable center centrist yeah. but progressive politics uh, and i look at macron in france that that really did that as well you know his movement did kind of move his en marche movement brought together lots of different organisations. We're seeing it in Podemos in Spain and a few places. So, yeah, well, so we actually deregistered the sex party and then re-registered Reason to to really say that there was a separation. However, obviously, the policies that we hold dear to our heart in the sex party still exist. But Reason and my election into Parliament has enabled us to broaden that platform. Right. In a, I think, in a, in a really good way. You were talking to me earlier before we pressed record. We should have pressed record then, <laughs> Fiona, but anyway, about a wonderful achievement that you've just mm. managed to pull off, which mm. is a safe injecting room in Richmond in Victoria. Was that under uh, the Reason banner? Uh, yes, the second half. Yes. Tell me about that. I want to know how that happened because this is a bit of a watershed moment when it comes to people who inject drugs and some real steps in yep. harm minimisation. So in my electorate of Northern Metropolitan, Abbotsford and North Richmond, which has for decades been a, a real centre of drug taking and, and drug buying um, in Melbourne. In fact, the police would say if you were to design a great place for drug selling and dealing and using, you would design Abbotsford, North Richmond. Because it's a bit of a rabbit warren. It's a rabbit warren with great public transport. (laughs) (laughs) So, And then you've also got a large number of public housing um, spaces, apartments there. 
So when um, a woman, Musée, died in the toilet of a Hungry Jacks in that area, there was a coroner's report. And it was at that point we, you know, we did the count. Like 26 people had died in the last year in a 300 square metre area. And the community was up in arms, the coroner was up in arms, and I was up in arms. And I had been trying to 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 move on this. I mean, when I was elected in 2014, I said to the Premier, I want assisted dying, I want a supervised injecting centre, and I want safe access zones around abortion clinics. And he just went, no. Anyway, we've got all three. Wow. So I... So over the summer of 2017, we drafted the legislation. I went and saw the police commissioner commissioner, and said, this is what I'm going to do. I then started to rally all of the organisations that were supportive and using the coroner's call for a supervised injecting centre. I introduced the legislation. I had no support in the parliament, but I managed to keep it alive while I built, continued to build up the support and I even got like the tabloid Herald Sun to come on side with us. I had the Australian on side and eventually I had the police association. I'd already got the fire brigade and the ambos on side. And in the end, the Premier said, we will do it. And he did. And the centre is up and running. It's running out from a existing health centre. So we've got, you know, People who are injecting drugs on the street are one of the most chaotic cohorts of the drug-taking community. They generally have underlying trauma, mental illness, physical um, illnesses, a whole range of other issues. They can now come into one door. We ensure that they don't overdose. And then, much to my amazement and delight, we've now got a volunteer dentist who comes in there. Uh, We've got a a lawyer who comes in we're providing hep C treatments there we're just not only are we saving people's lives but we're actually showing people that we care about them which is probably the most important aspect of absolutely what you've been able to achieve if you want to put someone on a path to recovery just knowing that there are people who care mm. whether they live or die and for the community we've seen ambulance call outs drop by something like 80 percent that's amazing it's incredible We've seen the number of needles and syringes in in the streets decline enormously as well. And there's just a sense, a greater sense of peace because it felt like a war zone because there were sirens going day and night um, around that area. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a lovely juxtaposition to the assisted dying legislation that I was able to instigate on one end, helping people to die when they want to, and on the other end, stopping people from dying. It's an amazing achievement, Fiona, it really is. And it should be used as a model for other states. Yes, absolutely. And I think it shows, it's pragmatic. Mm. And and as I bang on quite regularly, this, if we could spend our money, if governments could be smart and spending our money putting effectively fences at the top of the cliff instead of paying for the ambulance at the bottom, we would have far more money to spend on the things we want to spend mm. that on, whether that's housing, whether that's infrastructure, whether that's treatment, whether that's health, whether that's education. So the cost of setting up a supervised injecting centre, for example, versus the cost of sending those people to emergency, having ambulances, fire brigade, paramedics, picking those people up. You know, 
It's it's just incomparable. No, it seems obvious, doesn't it? We are just going to save money. And it's the same, and I see this in mental health and in counselling, that if you can intervene early, you are then not going to be dealing with something at the acute level. So, yes, so we've got both ends and then the... um, the buffer zones around the abortion clinics, all issues that I think only an independent can put through because governments can't do it, even if they wanted to. They've got to get that consensus of their caucus. They've got to get that consensus of their cabinet. So my, I see my job really hasn't changed. I'm a lobbyist and I'm an advocate. I just have the mobile phone numbers of the ministers now. Yeah. Um, And they don't think I'm all that nice anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're a doer, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, I've worked hard and it's a great privilege to be able to do that. So you've been a fashionista. (laughs) You've worked closely within the adult industry, advocating for supporting Mm -hmm. uh, sex workers. You're now moved into politics, doing some amazing things Mm. for humanity, I have to say. Mm. And now you're an author. Yes. So you have a, a book which is uh, Sex, Drugs and the Electoral Roll, which is a fantastic name, I should say. <laughs> uh, My Unlikely Journey from Sex Worker to Member of Parliament. Why is your story an important one to share? Look, I think there's... Um, I, I think it's about showing that anyone can go into Parliament and into politics if you go there for the right reasons. I think that we need greater diversity in our parliaments. We want our parliaments to be reflective of our community. So telling the story of of my journey there, I hope will encourage other people who might think, oh, no, I never could do it because of this or I never could do it because of that. My life's a fairly open book now. Uh, well, it's in a book now. Um, and I think that shows that yeah, you can come from different backgrounds and you can come in when you think that you may be judged in the wrong way, whether that's whether you've been a sex worker or whether you're same-sex attracted or whether you're part of our LGBTIQ community, that that those things don't preclude you or exclude you from Parliament. And I want to see more women in Parliament. I want to see a greater diversity of people in Parliament. And I I hope that this, this book does... Um, go some way towards towards that and you know I'm not saying that women are better in politics but a balance is better because it's it is in an illustration of an unlikely story mm. which is a positive message that you'd be sending to people who who as you say think oh I'm a, I'm only a so and so or I'm only a such That's and right. such it seems unlikely that I'm ever going to be able to make any inroads in something that I'm passionate about or or making some change in the world. And this story is mm. an unlike or could be <laughs> construed as an unlikely scenario. A- absolutely. And I um you know, I caused a lot of red faces in my inaugural speech when I said, um, I may be the first sex worker to be elected into this house, but there have been thousands of clients who've come before me. <laughs> and and it is, you know, it is interesting because that is absolutely true. Mm. And no one would think I can't go into politics because I've been a client of a sex worker, yet people were surprised that a sex worker would go into politics. Yeah. You know, it's that, it is that double standard that that I think my story probably illustrates in, a, in, in one way. Check it out.
So tell me about your career. Do you have an idea for the future, Fiona? Well, I don't want to be in politics forever. I think that I think it's a dangerous thing, and I've managed to get a lot done and work really hard in this first four years. I'd like a second four years. I think, but I think that's it. And then I have no idea what the next journey will be. I've got an idea. It's your erotica museum. I think it needs a resurrection. Fiona. Yes. Okay. <laughs> right. I'd, I would go. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll take that on board, Lee. That, look, it could be something like that. We I think could it'd be fantastic. We could go into the arts again, and um, and look. I haven't been collecting much since we closed it down because I've really run out of space. So if that would give me an opportunity to shop more and collect more, <laughs> well, maybe that is a future career for me. Yeah. So, I mean, you obviously have many years left yeah. in your working career. Do you have some idea of how you'd like to eventually slow things down? And No. And in fact, um, Robbie and I argue about this constantly. Uh, well, not constantly, but... We have a beautiful property just outside Canberra in the Brindabella Valley, and and it is gorgeous, but there are no wine bars up there. <laughs> there yeah. are no nice restaurants, and there are no beaches. So as much as I love it, that's not where I'm going to see yeah. my days out. You like a bit of hustle and bustle. I do, I do. I like I like the city. I mean, I love Canberra, but I'm really loving Melbourne at the moment. So I, I, I don't know where that future will go. I know it will involve work mm. um, and it will involve doing something that I love doing and it will involve people and it will involve parties. I, I know all of that and it will involve champagne. I know that. <laughs> um, but I don't know what else what else will, will be in there. Um, being able to use the skills that I could hone back in those first days with the AIDS Action Council, with WISE, then with Eros, being able to use those skills and hone those skills even further in Parliament, I hope that um, I can use those skills outside Parliament um, in another really effective way for the community. But I've got a few more things to tick off my list in the next yeah. four years. Is there anything that you do in your downtime uh, hobby or an activity that you like to do to sort of switch off from your day-to-day? Um, yes. I, I've been in very fortunate that I have been a swimmer all my life. So I was a competitive swimmer um, for a long time and I've maintained that. So swimming is really a perfect thing for me to to get away. I'm also still pretty competitive, but fortunately nobody else in the pool knows that I'm racing them <laughs> when I beat them. Um, <laughs> So I get a little bit of my competitive spirit out there in the swimming pool as well so I can just beat the people slowly, not thinking about racing yeah. next to me. But, yeah, swimming is is something that's really important for me uh, and that keeps me sane. Yeah. So you grew up in Canberra mm. and coming back to Canberra, how much has Canberra changed for you? Um, it's still incredibly familiar. Like actually being here um, at Havelock House, you know, I have lots of history of Havelock House over over my university days. I I lived two blocks from here, so Canberra is still really familiar for me. You know, I, I was born here, but we moved a lot, so you know, it's it's certainly it's changing. I mean, I love the way that it's kind of getting cooler. Um, 
It's a little bit groovy. It is a little bit groovy. But I've always loved Canberra and I, you know, people have always said, oh, it's a terrible place. And I say, you know, Canberra is a great place to live. I somehow might agree with you that sometimes it's a terrible place to visit because you just don't know. <laughs> but living in Canberra, I think it's a, it, you know, it's it's one of the most wonderful cities in the world, really, on beautiful sunny days like yeah. this. So how can people find you? So if, if you have... Uh, something that somebody you'd like somebody to sign or uh, an issue that you'd love some support over how can people reach you look i would love to hear from people um in any which way but you know i've got a website fionapatton.com.au and of course via the reason website so reason.org.au and everywhere on social media of course well, Fiona Patton, it's been wonderful to have you in the studio. I hope you'll come back if you have uh, any burning issues that you'd like to discuss with us. Thank you so much for spending the afternoon with me. Thanks, Lee. Hopefully we'll see you soon. You will. For more information, visit our website at aidsaction.org.au. Follow us on Facebook or become an AIDS Action Council member. You know you want to. LGBTIQ health, lifestyle and community news. Check it out is brought to you by the AIDS Action Council. From Canberra. For everyone.